Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Great to see you here in the faithful remnant that aren't at our church weekend away. If you're wondering where everyone else is, uh, that's where they are. Uh, I was down there on Friday and Saturday and came back last night to open up the Word in this part of Acts, which I'm really excited about. Uh, it's, a, it's a great taste of what it'll be like as we think through planting churches into the future, like what's happening in Acts, as people will go out for us and, and, and start up new congregations across the city and country. So why don't we just thank God for the time we can come together for His Word and ask Him to change us through His Word by His Spirit today. Let's pray. Lord God, as we've come to hear Your Word just read, we recognize it's, it's a story, it's a history of the way You've acted throughout humanity. We're so thankful for the opportunity to hear from You and hear the way that You have worked and thankful that You are the same God today. So we ask this morning as we think through the implications of this passage for us, as we think through those that aren't with us and the possibility of the gospel going out from us, you'd encourage us, you'd challenge us, and you'd fix our eyes on what is really real. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the decisions that we consistently need to make in life is this. What is really real? What is really real? Have you ever laid there in your bed at night and heard a sound? One of Sarah's favorite phrases is, what's that noise? You know, is it a robber? Is it the wind? Do you, you know, what is really real? A political promise. Is it another empty dream? Or a commitment to a plan that will actually make a difference? What is really real? Feelings of anxiety that we experience. The content of an apology. A pain. A promise. Being able to distinguish between what is real and what is not is incredibly important. Some decisions in life, they don't really matter whether it's true or not. Uh, my favorite food is ice cream. Is it true or not? It doesn't really matter. For me, it might. But for other decisions, the stakes are much higher. When it comes to the things of God, the matters of life and death, truth matters. Working out what is really real has a massive impact on the way that we live our lives now, on what we value and what we live for, and how we will spend eternity. The claim that there is a God that this life is not all there is, that what God says can be trusted. They're claims that for many of us, we've, we've trusted and put our life in. We, we've put our lives in the hands of thinking that these are really real. Now, I take it that we think that these claims are real, not because it's just a nice sentimentality, but because we think the claims of Christianity have actually happened. Jesus really did live. He really did die. He really did rise again, just like he said he would. He is God the Son. He is coming back again. We can speak to the Father in prayer and He hears us and the Holy Spirit lives within us. These are things that are really real if you trust in Jesus. But if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have doubts, don't we? Is this God really who He says He is? Have I given up these things for just no reason at all? Or is the resurrection true? Will I really rise from the dead? We look around at the events of the world and we wonder, is God really in control? Or am I believing a fairy tale? We pray for things. And sometimes it seems like God does nothing about them. We look at the decisions being made by the leaders of our country and the the conclusions of our country. And you wonder, is this Jesus stuff really real? Like, Have I got it wrong? Have I backed the wrong horse? Am I on the wrong side of history? Is there a God and does He really make a difference? You ever felt that? We feel that 
often those questions come into our mind and they're important questions to to sort out because we want to make sure what we believe is really real. As we get to this next section in the book of Acts, the question of who is in charge and what is really real comes to the forefront. Last week, we saw the book of Acts claims to be a historical account of the events of the first century after Jesus had died, risen and ascended to the Father. It's not a a book of what to do or or opportunities of of things that we should follow in this life, but it's a story of what actually went on. It is history. Even as I say all that, though, there's a part of me that goes, did he really rise from the dead? Did he really heal the sick? Will he really come back again? There's a part of me that goes, is this really real? It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like some of the things of myth and legend more than history. But what I want to show you today in this section of what Luke writes in the book of Acts is that these events that that come to us from the Bible, specifically this part of Acts, they are indeed real. And they have a massive implication for what else I view as real in this world. For who is really in control and how I live in response to to that. So let me introduce you to King Herod and the decisions Herod made. It's point number two in your outline. Acts 2 verse 1 tells us this. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with a sword. Now Herod was a real figure of history. We need to go into a little bit of history here to understand what is really real. Uh, there's a number of Herods throughout the Bible. The one that we usually remember from the Christmas stories is the one that wanted to kill every child under two and, and, and see them wiped out for fear of a king coming. That's called Herod the Great, different Herod. Uh, Herod the Great was crazy, absolutely crazy, into these massive building regimes, but he was a real figure in history. He then had children, but he refused to give them uh, the rule of all of Judea as king of Judea. So he set up what, what's called a tetrarchy. So a sub-rule, where they kind of rule different sections, but no one is actually the prime king. And we hear about those Herods, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip the Tetrarch was also called Herod. There's three children. So that's the next level down. That's not this Herod either. The Herod we meet here is Herod the Great's grandson. It's Herod Agrippa I. Uh, We'll meet Herod Agrippa II, the next Herod down, in Acts 26. But what's helpful to see at this moment is in this part of the story we're hearing from Acts, it's lining up with history. It's real events talking about real leaders on the face of this planet. So Herod Agrippa, here in a a passing comment from Luke, the author of Acts, decides to kill James. Now, who is James? (laughs) We need to understand a little bit here. This is called James the brother of John. James, the brother of John. Now, why would we hear which James this is? You see, what we see here is another really important fact about reality. There's a number of Jameses in the Bible as well. In fact, there's four. This James is not the brother of Jesus' James. That's a different one. He would become a leader of the church in Israel after James here dies. Um, And it's important to note that this James, James the brother of of Jesus, not the one in the passage, he's actually Jesus' brother from Mary. We need to listen to the Bible, not church tradition. The Catholic Church would say that Mary didn't have any other children. That's different to what history records. That's not really real. Uh, History and the Bible records, no, she did have other children and James was one of them. James is Jesus' 
biological brother, at least from his mother. No, here we meet James, the brother of John. And what's interesting is that Luke, the author of Acts here, wants to single out which James he's talking about. If this was made up, if this was just a fairy tale or a myth, was just kind of going on and wasn't true, you wouldn't spend so much time kind of pointing out which James it was or knowing that you had to point out which James it was because there were lots of other Jameses around. What's really interesting is that James was an incredibly common name in the first century. Uh, Not so at other points in history. And so when there's a common name, you do this thing called a disambiguation. You make it less ambiguous. You say, James, the brother of John. You add that to the end. You know, Rowan, the husband of Sarah. Or Sarah, the husband of Rowan, because there's many Sarahs. It's more likely to be that way. No one knows me as Rowan, uh, the husband of Sarah, really. But often they talk about Sarah, ah, Sarah as in you're married to Rowan. Yes, that's Sarah, because there's so many Sarahs. Um, now, if we lived in an age where there was, a, you had, a, like, if we went, um, uh, it was Bartholomew, uh, you know, because there's 18 Bartholomews in our church, it would be weird for that to have a disambiguation, to actually write that down, because it's just an odd name. If your name is Bartholomew, sorry that I've said it's odd, I just mean it's not common. There we go. So, what we're seeing is that when historians go back over this period in history, that the names that were common all in the Bible, have these disambiguations. They're highlighting, actually, this is really real. It lines up with history. Uh, Rarer names don't have that disambiguation, and it's quite clear. Now, if this was made up 100 years later, 200 years later, as so many people claim, that wouldn't line up with what we see. They, They couldn't go onto Google, first century Google, and type, you know, common names from last year as you're looking for baby names and work out what the, the names were. There wasn't that sort of cataloging available that we have today as we've gathered together all the writings that are in existence and finding out these things. So you couldn't make this stuff up. So historians point to the fact that this is actually talking about what is really going on. So this James is the brother of John. You hear about them in the start of the Gospels. Uh, James and John, the fishermen, the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder. Great name for a band or a tattoo. I'm a son of thunder. I don't know. It just sounds like a, a kind of heavy metal band. Uh, they were both disciples of Jesus, James and John. And with Peter, they formed the inner three. These are the, the, the disciples, the, the closest friends of Jesus. You've got Jesus, you've got James, John and Peter. Now that Jesus has risen, the, 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 kind of, the, the, corner, the core of the Christian church, these inner three apostles. And what we see here in Herod's decision is he doesn't care about truth. He only cares about political reign. He's ruling over Judea and Jerusalem. And the Jews, they, they don't like this new Christian startup. They don't like these three inner guys. And so what does he do? Just as Jesus was killed, now Herod was going to kill one of the leaders of the Christian church. And so, in a passing comment, Luke records, Herod has James killed. This is the first disciple, the first apostle that's been killed. We read about Stephen being stoned in Acts 7, but now we've got an apostle. We've got one of these founders of the church, and you start to think, is it really real? You can imagine the early church. This is one of our core leaders. Is God really in control? You can imagine them praying for James, and then, but James dies anyway. This is huge. If you were there and you were watching these events unfold, I'm sure you'd be asking, have I backed the right horse? Is this Jesus who we saw really who he said he was? Now, sure, 
The early church in Jerusalem would have been praying for James. I'm sure of it. For his deliverance. Surely James being alive for a bit longer is what God would have wanted, right? Would have seen the gospel go out. After all, Jesus only chose 12 disciples and one of them was James. So he's picked them. And now James is dead so soon after Jesus' resurrection. Is it really real? Is God actually in control? Because at times it doesn't look like it. And I'm sure you've experienced that in life as well. Times you feel like, is God really in control? Is this really real? Then Luke tells us that Herod flexes more of his muscles. He makes more decisions as this ruler over Judea, deciding to put Peter, one of the other inner three, in prison. Look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Herod's aims, like so many of the worldly political leaders, is to further their own popularity and power, to lead by what everyone thinks is good, by what the world around them wants to hear, to scratch itching ears and say, yes, yes, that's what we want. And so they just go in line with what others think. And the Jews didn't like this startup Christian cult. And so Herod, wanting the popularity of the Jews and the power that brings, just goes with the popular choice. You can kind of imagine him, the nods of approval Herod got, him feeling like, yes, everyone loves me. I am the leader that everyone loves. I'm the people's leader. Then we see, compared to this leader strutting his stuff on the stage, this little private group of the first church, this little early church in Jerusalem, praying in a private house, looking pitiful and small and wondering, is this really real? What's interesting to note is the early church knew that their first port of call, when these things happen, when whatever is going on in God's world isn't going as we think, or even when it is, our first port of call is to speak to the God who's in control. And so they fervently pray. They're praying to God, asking Him to stop the evil of this Herod, this pretend king who's strutting his stuff on the world stage. So I was going through this passage. It struck me how core it was for that early church to pray, to speak to God, the one who they saw was in control, and ask Him to change things. Really convicted me this week how often I try to get things done under my own strength. How infrequently my, my first port of call is not prayer. Prayer is this thing that we bring in at the end when I've got no other options. Kind of the Hail Mary throw, hoping it'll get in the basket at the end. And you just kind of go, yeah, well, I'll do it at that point. We relegate prayer to the when all else fails camp. Rather than coming to the Father who loves us and loves and longs to bring about His plans through our prayers. Let me say that again. He loves to bring about His plans through our prayers through us speaking to Him in line with His will. The early church is a great example of what we need to do. We need to be on our knees to the one who is control, even when it seems like things aren't going the way they ought. Well, as we look on at these historical events, you can imagine what's going through the minds of this early Christian church. Is this really real? Is God in control? The leaders around us seem to have it all kind of stitched up. This, this powerful message of the gospel, the message we were told is unstoppable, is looking like it's going to get stopped. 
Maybe I have backed this wrong horse. Maybe it isn't really real. And there's this sense where, again, we keep thinking, is this us today? We have leaders in control who think it's okay to take the life of the unborn and the elderly into our own hands. We live in a nation that celebrates rebellion against the way God made all sorts of things, like marriage and gender. We see the leaders around us in the society that we live in saying that Christianity, the church, is, it's just nice sentimentality. Oh, you can, you can keep it as a private thought, that's fine, but just keep it there. It shouldn't affect our policy, it shouldn't affect the way we think about things. It's not really a worldview or what defines truth, it's just your own little personal thing that you can have if you want, like a kind of optional extra. Society has effectively sidelined any argument of what God is or does or says or thinks. And said, it's just a myth. It's not really real. Do you see what's going on? This world is a battle for what is real. Then there's sickness. You know, for half a year this year, we basically can't gather. I thought God was in control of all things. I thought he said his kingdom would grow. How is not being able to meet together going to further his plans so that more people can come to trust Jesus? You might have been praying for a friend to come to know Jesus and the hope that he brings, but they consistently say, no, I'm not interested. A family member, no, not for me. You may have been praying that God would defend New Zealand, but feel like in this current election, he's handed it, well, he's not defending it. Maybe I should just be silent. Maybe I should just go with the flow of society. Maybe I've been backing the wrong horse a little, or I should step back and retreat. Maybe God isn't really who I thought he was. Maybe Christianity isn't who... What, it, what I thought it was. Do you feel that? What's so great about this section of Acts is that God shows us the real humanity of people, what's and all. We get to see their disbelief. It doesn't put forward a view that everyone's like, yes, I'm fine, everything's great. I think everything's going to go brilliantly and I'm perfectly in control and I trust God for everything. We get to see their brokenness and their frailty. And that shows up the God who is in control who always does what he decides to do and always brings about his plans, even through the most horrific of circumstances. While King Herod makes his decision, have a look at the decision God makes. Point number three and Acts 12, verse 6. The decision God made. When Herod was about to bring Peter out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. While the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. He didn't know what the angel, was re- he didn't know what the angel did was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So it records the reality, right? I don't think this is real. After they pursed the past the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. Here we see this picture of who is the real king. Herod struts his stuff. God says, who's in control? But that's not all. God makes it blatantly clear that he is the one that calls the shots. Herod here is is furious that Peter got out. 
So he then further flexes his muscles. He goes and interrogates the 16 guards that were keeping Peter safe. And Herod's trying to show his earthly prowess. You get him being angry. You cross Herod, then you die. And he kills them all. And you think, how is this part of God's plan? Well, Watch what happens. In verse 20, Luke tells us that Herod delivers a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And look what happens to this king who thinks he's in control. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not a man. They love Herod. They're like, look at this guy. He's amazing. His words are so good and true. And ah, he's an amazing king and he does what we want and he always gives us what we want. And he helps us through. And you think, wow, the people have just been sucked into this political leader. Uh, To show you that these events really are real, I want to read to you something from another historian. Not a Christian historian, Josephus. Um, He was no friend of Christians. He was kind of in, in bed with Rome and linked with some of the Jews. This is what he said happened in this event. It's on the screen. There came together for this occasion a large number of provincial officials and of other distinguished position. On the second day of the shows, Agrippa, so Herod Agrippa, put on a robe made of silver throughout, of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theatre at the break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it. And its its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. Hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be more than mortal nature. He did not rebuke them, nor did he repudiate their impious flattery. He thought he was untouchable. But here is a warning for all earthly leaders, for our prime minister, for any government that is in place, and any leader. Popularity does not equal power, nor position promise prosperity. While it seems that the earthly rulers get their way while they itch itching ears, they're seemingly unchecked, and while their reign looks like they are in control, God shows he is in control. Look at verse 23. At once, the angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Like, that's scary worms, right? Worms that are so big. Well, I don't know how that works, but there's something there with worms that is bad and we don't want to happen. And I take it our leaders don't want that to happen. The warning here for all leaders is, remember who is king. Remember what is really real. You are not in charge. God is in charge. Every earthly leader needs to hear that warning. God's judgment is coming. Do not pretend to be God. But you don't have to be a leader to pretend to be God, do you? So often we put ourselves in the place of God. We think we can call the shots. We want to rule life. We want to do what's popular or right. Whether we we agree with God or not, we we think we're in the seat of choosing what we do in life. It's a warning for us too. Do not put yourself in the place of God. We don't get to determine what is right and wrong. God does. He is God and He alone is God. Hear the warning of this passage. God is in control. He will judge the living and the dead. But there's this part of me that when I hear this, when I hear what happened to Herod, even though Josephus says it, 
I kind of go, did it really happen? Is this just a story or a myth? Well, I want to read to you the rest of the section from Josephus. Not at all a friend of Christians. This is what he continues to say. You ready? At the same time, Herod was seized with a severe pain in his bowels, which quickly increased in intensity. He was hastily carried into the palace, and when he had suffered continuously for five days from the pain in his belly, he died. In the 54th year of his life and the seventh year of his kingship, Herod really died. The real king showed who was really in control. When it looked like all was lost, Herod's self-focused, destructive plans would win in the end. God answered the prayers of this early church. He rescued Peter and removed this self-focused king from the face of the planet. God is in control. God works. He does it. We've got to remember that. But the question that rises to my brain then is, what about James? Why did James die, but Peter didn't? Could not have God have saved James as well? I imagine the church were praying just as fervently for James as they were for Peter. Did God's plan stuff up? Were the prayers of the church not fervent enough? Sometimes you hear people come along and say, look, God didn't answer your prayers because you didn't have enough faith. Uh, Unfortunately, it was in a church just last Sunday where that was preached very clearly. That was the problem. I don't trust God enough. That's why it's not happening. And God's plans are limited to my faith. You didn't pray enough. You didn't pray expectantly. You didn't declare it. Now, the reason God answers prayers for Peter, you think, is because maybe how fervent their prayers were. And people take this line of thinking to say that we need God to break into the world to do the miraculous. And if you want that to happen, then you've got to really trust. You've got to be really fervent. It really depends on the amount of faith you have. And the reason that we don't see more miraculous events in our world, we don't see God's hand in our world, is because we don't have enough faith or, or further in our prayers. But I want you to notice how much faith the early church had in their prayer for Peter. Did you see it on the way through? Firstly, Peter is even amazed that it's real. He's come out and he's like, whoa, I, wasn't, I thought I was dreaming. It's not like he was in prison going, yes, I declare God will save me. I've got so much trust in God's saving power. My trust took me out because I knew God would be victorious in the end. And he had to declare it to the prisoners. No, no, no. He's like, what just happened? <laughs> he did nothing. It was unexpected totally for him. He says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, well, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. Now, that's not the voice of someone declaring the victory of God saying, yes, I told you he was going to do it. It's, he's surprised. God does it all despite his unbelief. And then the prayers of the church, the fervent prayers, you're thinking, yes, they were declaring that strongly and saying, yes, it must happen. They had so much faith. But when Peter turns up at Mary's house, and again, Luke tells us which Mary, because Mary was a common name, Mary, the mother of John, John Mark, and again, Mark is given a disambiguation as well. It's John Mark, not the other Johns. So again, showing you real history. When Peter turns up at the house of Mary... They're praying still. Early church, love it. Look at verse 13. Peter knocks at the door of the outer gate and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, ran in and announced it that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Now, if they were expecting this to happen, they would be like, this is great. Welcome in, Peter. We're excited that you're here. God is great. What do they say? You're out of your mind. Not much faith there, is there? They're praying, not expecting it to happen. You're out of your mind that Peter is at the door. 
But she kept insisting it's true. Meanwhile, Peter's outside with the elevator music. Dun, 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 dun. Like, Guys, they're going to come. Like, what's... Anyway, she kept insisting and they said it's his angel, his messenger. Someone's come. Peter keeps knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Now again, the New Testament accounts of people doesn't paint them as perfect. It paints them as what's and all. Flawed. But they were amazed. They didn't have this amazing faith that God would necessarily do it. They weren't expecting Peter. It wasn't their faith that saw their prayers answered. It was part of God's plan. It's the power and purpose of God. You cannot manipulate God by faith. By thinking that if I have enough faith, then God, I can kind of twist his arm so he's got to do what I say because I've got so much faith in him. As if we can control God. The far better news is that God hears our prayers despite our failures and despite our lack of faith. And he answers them in line with his will and plans every time. He grows his kingdom by bringing more people to himself and securing the spread of the gospel, not by the ways that we always think. All sorts of tragedies happen and things don't work out the way we want, but God is still in control and we see that here. The gospel will not be extinguished despite our faithlessness, despite a lack of further. So we need to trust him and pray for this news of Jesus, the real king, what is really real, to break into the world around us. But what about James? How does James fit into this? What happened there? Well, come with me and I'll show you something extraordinary. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It's on the screen. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus tells James that he would actually die, that he's in control. Watch what happens. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. You can see they were humble at this point, right? (laughs) Not at all. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked them. They answered, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. So they're all about political power. They're like, I want to sit on the right and left of Jesus when he comes back. this This is what I want. I want to sit there with him. I want to be by Jesus. We want to be Jesus' wingmen. And Jesus is like, oh, you've got so much to learn. (laughs) You don't know what, sorry, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't know what I'm about to do. I'm about to go and lay down my life and by a political leader be hung on a cross and die and then suffer the consequences for the rebellion of the world around us. To see God's plan enacted. Are you able to do that? Are you ready? We are able, they say. (laughs) We'll do it. And Jesus said, listen to this. You will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. James and John have this moment asking Jesus to make them special. Trying to play this political game. Trying to be sub-kings, almost joint rulers, tetrarchs, (laughs) you could say. But Jesus recognizes that when he is seated in glory, there is still the work of proclaiming the kingdom to be, gun, to, be, to be done until his return. And that requires sacrifice. Jesus' words here, you'll, cup, you'll drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. In Acts 12, come to fruition for James. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. God tells us this. So the, the apostles, the, the early church are not freaked out. They know this is what is said. That James would die. And it's lining up exactly with God's plans. Now, why he's chosen this, we don't quite yet know. But we know he has. And God is saying, trust me, 
I am what is really real. This is not out of control. I am in control. It's not a failure of God, but a move to show who is in control. And what we see is, it's not only in the spectacular that you see God's hand at work. God's hand is at work in everything. In the ordinary. Especially when he's told us what the ordinary will be. We don't have to wait for the amazing miracle of God breaking in. God is sovereignly in control of all circumstances, of every election, of every leader. And he puts them in their place for his purposes and plans. Even sometimes when we can't understand why, and we go, why is this going on? James was home. The horror of the first death of an apostle had hit the church, and it was tragic. It was a loss, but not in God's economy. See, Jesus never promised following him would be easy. He never promised that the rulers of this earth would agree with us and come in line with what God's will is. He never promised the eradication of sickness and death and evil and sin, not until he returns again and shows that he is the real king. And there'll be no more mourning and crying and pain for the old order of things will be done away. That's when those things happen. But in the meanwhile, it will be hard. There'll be opposition and we'll be tempted to think, is God really real? Is he really in control? Can I trust him? Acts 12 tells us Jesus is king. God is in control. And that leaves all of us with a decision that we need to make. Every person in this room today needs to make the decision of what is really real. So easy to think God isn't real. Jesus isn't king. The ways of the world are winning. We don't often see the miraculous. We don't always have our prayers answered with a yes. In fact, very rarely are they answered with a yes. But Acts 12 is showing you and I today, God is in control. Even through the hard things that happen, through the miraculous and the common day events, He's bringing about His plans and purposes. And it is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Luke finishes this section of Acts with a simple observation, so short, Acts 12, 24. But the word of God spread and multiplied. Two kings came head to head. False king and a true king. And the true king won. When it feels like we face defeat, when things don't go the way they ought or should, when suffering happens, when we experience seeming blows for the spread of the gospel, when people reject the news of Jesus... We can stand back and trust in God's goodness and His power and His plan. We can trust He's in control and that the gates of Hades will not overpower the spread of His kingdom. Such an encouragement to see the way God works. So do not give in to the world around you that says Christianity is a myth, a sideline, a private thing. It's mere sentimentality. That is not real. The world's view is not really real. What's really real is the true and living God being in control of it all. As doubts come into your mind, look at history. Look at what has happened. Look at what God promised through his word and what has come to fruition. Look at what he's done in Jesus. Do not base your life on the lie that there is no God. That he's not in control, that my prayers aren't heard. That this here, this material world is all there is. And look to what is really real. And give your life to the cause of the news that Jesus is king and that our future is secure and that we now have this time to suffer through the ups and downs of life to proclaim the news of Jesus and prayerfully and dependently trust him, living for what is real. Let's pray.
Father God, we are so thankful that you speak to us through your word, that we get the interpretation of the events of history and get to see that you are in control of it all. We confess that so often we try to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. We try to think that we are God. We try to take the glory for what we've done. We try to think we can work our way out of situations. And we fail to come to you and recognize you are in control. Please forgive us. Forgive us for placing ourselves on the throne, for not trusting you. And help us to see so clearly who is in control and the reality of what the future holds. Make us as a church bold to share the news of Jesus, remembering what is real. Jesus is King, that you are God, that Jesus is coming back again to judge the living and the dead and that he has taken our place for all those who trust in him. Lord, thank you so much for that news and help us to live for what is really real. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.